Well, hello there, everybody. Good to see you this afternoon. Uh, let's see. Let's click off of this. Say, hey, how we doing here? I'll shut this down here. All right. So I am trying to figure out if I am doing all of this correctly right now because my streaming service platform changed their setup, and it's actually kind of annoying. Um, but I'm just going to assume that this is going well. Well, apparently I am. Uh, Sandra, good to see you there. So, welcome to In the Beginning Podcast. My name is George Gray. I'm the pastor of River of Life Fellowship Church, and this is a channel where we start to try to equip believers to serve the kingdom. So, this is a very random live stream. Uh, I'm, I haven't been report- recording podcasts for a little bit, I've taken some time off, and I've been enjoying it immensely. Um, so, time to get back to work and see what happens. So, uh, a little while ago, what uh, some people asked me about common objections to Christianity, and if I would do some uh, some conversations around that. So basically, that's what I'm starting today. So the beginning here, um, if you've seen the last few podcasts, has been my friend uh, Joe Turk. He'll be joining us uh, uh, down the road a little bit as we're going to be doing some conversations on the antediluvian world, um, as well as some other topics that we've got going on. But for now, I want to start this conversation in regard to common objections to Christianity. And what do we do as Christians to, well, to try to do anything about it? You know, how do we, how do we answer these questions? Are they, do we just, you know, tell people to trust in Jesus and figure that's going to be good enough? And if you've been around long enough, you know that that's, in my opinion, that's not good enough. And we need to be able to do better than that, uh, as believers. It's, it's important for us to, uh, it's important for us to, uh, uh, to be able to serve God in a more robust manner. So here's what's going on. Um, you know, I'm still trying to figure out what's going on with this live stream. Uh, so it's kind of kind of getting screwy here. So anyway, let's see what uh, let let's see what happens. Um, oh no, this is. Yeah, no, we'll be fine. Okay, so here's the idea. So today what's going to be happening is uh, I'm going to be dealing with the topic, can the Bible still be trusted after all this time? Um, so this first topic comes from a young woman. There was a text chain that was actually sent to me with this, uh, with this question in there. It was more of a, it was more of an assertion on her part, um, that the Bible has been changed so many times over the years that it can no longer be trusted. So, uh, the question is, is there any truth to that? Uh, now, Obviously, the answer immediately is no. There is absolutely no truth to that whatsoever. But at the same time, we have to be able to answer that in a uh, a more comprehensive way. So I'm going to walk through how to deal with that argument. Now, this particular claim is actually very common, um, and not just from people outside the church. It's from people inside the church. There are plenty of people inside the church, and I've even heard this from pulpits, who deny or doubt the reliability of scripture because of the age of the text. They think that, you know, society has changed. So, you know, God's opinions about things have changed. That's why you see a lot of churches around the world. Um, I would say letting go of biblical authority and embracing ungodly things that society says that are, are fine now. So apparently the church is just supposed to embrace them, even though God has declared them to be, uh, to be not the case. So what I'm going to do is we're going to click over to the view here. Um, and so the main claim is this, that over the centuries, uh, over the centuries, the Bible has been rewritten and changed so many times that the message it brings can no longer be trusted. Okay. So is this even true? And obviously my viewpoint is no, but we need to do a little bit better than that. Um, now, not only is this a common argument, it's also unfortunately a very weak argument for, for several reasons. Um, it serves to show kind of the ignorance of the person making the assertion, uh, in regards to translation. Now, uh, I want to make sure that I'm not misunderstood here. When I say ignorant, people can get all up in arms and they think that I'm being being mean. No, all ignorance is is a lack of understanding on a topic. Um, it's not – no one's being mean. No one's trying to belittle anybody. Ignorance is just simply when someone is speaking on a topic as though they are informed, but they are not. They're actually ignorant of – uh, of, of, of what they're actually claiming to, uh, to be knowledgeable about. Um, so if there's one thing that the biblical text has shown us over the centuries, it is, is that it is 
unbelievably reliable. Uh, and not just, uh, not just in the text itself, but historically and archaeologically, it is extremely consistent, uh, you know, and, and things that have been in the Bible for, you know, since its, since its inception have been, um, uh, ridiculed and told, said not to be true. You know, some societies, oh no, that society never existed. And what do we find out? Yes, it did. It actually did exist. And there are plenty of things, um, in the Bible where people question them. And then when you actually go dig around where the Bible says something is, you end up finding it. The Bible has shown itself to be very reliable over and over and over again. So uh, now this isn't to say that people haven't tried to twist the Bible and change its meaning for different purposes, because that has absolutely happened. Um, you know, in, in fact, there's examples of misuse um, all over the place. I mean, today we have uh, a translation of the Bible called the Queen James Bible, and it's to basically take the <laughs> the gender-specific uh, conversation in the Bible and the biblical morality and take it out of the conversation, uh, so that you can allow anything that you want to happen. And that's essentially the purpose. So there's been plenty of people over the years who have tried to, uh, twist scripture in one way, shape, or form. But that's not the point. The point is that scripture itself has shown itself to be extremely reliable, but we have to be able to do a little bit better than that. So let me give you an example of what I, what I mean by uh, understanding the reliability and trying to make sure that we're not walking in any degree of ignorance. Um, and there are many things that we think we know very well um, that we actually don't. Uh, and what I'm going to refer to, you're going to hear me refer to this a few different times, I'm going to refer to it as the ignorance of familiarity. So when you become really, really familiar with something or you're exposed to something for so long, you can become very well aware of it, but that actually doesn't mean that you understand it. So let me give you an example. I grew up as a military kid. So my father was army. We traveled all over the world. Um, you know, you grow up in the military and as a military kid, you might think that you understand the military where in reality you don't. You understand what life as a child in the military is like, but you don't actually understand the military, but you're very familiar with it. You've been around it your whole life. You've seen the, um, you've seen the hardware. You've seen the, you know, you've seen the travel. You've seen dad or mom go off to work and you've, you, so you're familiar with the topic and what that can do. That familiarity can actually make you believe that you are knowledgeable on the topic. And it's just not the case, you know, um, the church is no different. You know, um, when kids grow up in the church, they become very familiar with all things church. They get very familiar with worship. They get very familiar with prayer. They get very familiar with communion and, and weddings and, and, and funerals. They, they're familiar with all of these things. Um, and, but unfortunately, that does not mean that they actually understand Christianity. Um, a lot of the most vocal anti-Christian voices in the world today are people who grew up in the church. Some of these people even had pastors and missionaries for parents. But that doesn't mean that they actually understood Christianity. And we make the assumption that because someone is familiar or they've been around something their whole life, that they're actually part of it. And that is just not the case. You know, uh, you think about this. I've met a lot of pastors' kids and kids who have grown up in the church, and their parents are floored when they walk away from the church later on in life because they've assumed the whole time that their kids were actually Christians when really they were just familiar with Christianity. Um, they may have known about scripture, uh, scripture and God and salvation and, and faith, but that doesn't mean that they embraced it. So familiarity can breed a degree of ignorance if we are not careful in what they're, uh, what we're doing. Now the Bible is exactly the same way. As a Christian, you are around the Bible constantly. At least I hope so. You know, you're, you're reading it. You're, you're looking at it. You're being, you're hearing sermons on Sunday mornings. But just because you've been exposed to it, just because you've even read it and that you believe it doesn't necessarily mean that you understand how it came to be, why it is in the form that it is, why it's translated the way it is, how we got to these translations, and even why we have multiple styles of translations. Um, they, they, they're all very important. These are things as Christians we really need to understand. Um, we can't just assume that, 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 um, uh, that we understand these things because when you get asked these difficult questions, you end up not having answers and then people wonder, do you actually 
understand your own faith. And, and they would be right to believe that. You know, um, people are very familiar with the English version of the Bible that they have in their hands, but they are ignorant of how it came to be and why it is in the form that it is. And that leads people to think things like, well, the Bible has been translated so many different times over the years that you can't even trust the message anymore, which is unfortunately a very ignorant viewpoint. Um, but now fixing this issue is not a small task, not even for a believer, but we all have to start somewhere. So hopefully uh, today I can kind of help you on that journey. I have some really interesting things to show you here because I've been um, uh, collecting different different artifacts around the Bible for quite a while and uh, had some stuff sent to me a year or so ago and uh, that is just just amazing, but we'll get to that in a second. So uh, I want to give you five things to uh, that I uh, hope you will keep in mind uh, when you're thinking about translation and the reliability of Scripture. Okay, so five things to keep in mind uh, when you're thinking about the reliability of the Bible and translation specifically. First of all, the Bible has never changed. So the assertion that the Bible has changed over the centuries is completely ridiculous. The Bible actually has never changed, okay? Um, the Bible as we know it is not a book written by one person. That's the mistake people people make. People think that when, you, when you're dealing with the Bible, you're dealing with the book. I've actually heard people say, the Bible was written by a bunch of monks in the 15th century. Uh, you want to talk about an unbelievably ignorant statement, um, someone who hasn't even done five minutes of Google research on the topic. But at the same time, this is a common belief by a lot of people. The Bible is a collection of books and letters written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by multiple authors over multiple years, and it has shown itself to be to be faithful and true throughout its entirety. Um, now, if you're holding an English Bible right now, so when I when I have this, we call this we call this the Bible. You're not actually holding the Bible, okay? When people say, well, the Bible has changed. No, no, it hasn't. You're holding a translation of the text. I know that sounds like a bunch of technical, you know, techno babble, but it, it really is the truth. You're holding a translation. You're not holding the actual text itself. You don't have the papyrus. You don't have the manuscripts. You don't have the, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls. They're not in your house. You're not reading Greek and Hebrew and, and Aramaic. That's not what you're doing. You don't have those things. You have a translation of the text and that translation was made with a specific viewpoint, okay? Um, when people claim that the Bible has changed, they're mistakenly thinking that what we have today is actually the inspired text. And it's actually not, not, not the case. It's a translation of the text. And it's really important that we understand this. Now, one of the things that I do when I teach hermeneutics classes, I like to ask this question. Did God inspire the English Bible? Now, most people immediately just say, well, yes, of course God inspired the English Bible. Stop and think about that just for a second. English didn't exist. Uh, the United States didn't exist. Uh, most people didn't even know the earth was round at that point. Um, and they believed that the Middle East was pretty much the, the, the entirety of, 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 the, of the known world. So, no, God did not inspire the English text. Because even if you believe that to be true, you have to ask yourself, well, which one? Because there are... 30, 40, 50 different English translations of the Bible, which one is inspired? So if you're going to claim one is inspired and the other is not, well, you're going to have an argument because someone else is going to say, no, mine is inspired, yours is not. So we've, we've really got to bring this back down to the, the, the platform that it needs to be on. When God inspired the original authors of the biblical text, the books and the letters, they were written to a very specific group of people in that time according to that culture and those societal settings. not The Bible was not written to 21st century Western American Christians. It just simply wasn't, no matter how much we want it to. It was not. It was written to 1st century and earlier Jews and Greek converts to Judaism and, and, the, and, and the Greek converts to, to Christianity, or what they called the way at the time. It was written to them in their setting in their days. So we have to, we have to understand that God inspired that text. God inspired those letters, those books. So when I say the Bible has never changed, what I'm talking about is that the original manuscripts have never changed. No one went back in time and changed those original manuscripts. They still say what they have always said. What has changed is the use of language by the people who are reading it. And this is why we have various translations. And this is why certain translations have changed over the centuries. The message hasn't changed, but the way we use language has. So the biblical text has to, if we're going to be 
good stewards of what God has given us in the text of the Bible, we have to we have to agree that the language needs to be updated periodically based on the language used in modern days so that people can understand more accurately what it is we're doing. Um, so you think about the change in language just over the last 2,000 years, you know, uh, not, not even just language, but culture, societal customs, um, political and legal codes. There's a t- so many things that have changed over the last 2,000 years. We need to make sure that the the, the context of the Bible stays true in whatever setting that we happen to be reading in. So that's why there's a bunch of different translations. Now, and we know that the Bible hasn't changed because we can go back to the original sources. We can actually go back to the first century papyrus. We can go back to the Dead Sea Scrolls. We can take what we're reading here, we can take what we're seeing, and we can compare it to the originals. And that's how we know that the messaging in the Bible has never changed. It has always been the same, and it will always remain the same because we can compare it back to the original. So here's some things that I had sent to me. I'm going to expand this out a little bit so you can see this a little bit better. So here are some things that were sent to me quite a while ago um, um, uh, by uh, by Susan G. Uh, well, Susan A., I'm sorry. Um, so I want to sh- show you these. We don't just have the original text. We have some amazing some amazing historical things. So I've got, um, so one of the claims that this young lady who, who, uh, who said you can't trust the Bible because it's been translated too many times, one of the claims that she said was that the, uh, that the Bible doesn't even say the same thing that it said even just a few hundred years ago, which is, uh, terribly unfortunate that someone would make that assertion, especially because we actually have bits of the Bible and even full Bibles from those those time periods. So let me show you a couple of things that I got here. So this is a New Testament collection of what's called the Geneva Bible. So this is one of the first English, uh, you know, widespread English translations of the Bible. And this was made by a collection of people in Geneva. Um, one of the more uh, famous people involved in this translation was um, uh, John Calvin. Um, there was a team of people kind of in, in, involved in this whole thing. So this is the New Testament collection of that translation. So they've preserved the original translation from around 1570. Okay, um, so really amazing 1570 or 1590 something like that late 1500s anyway so this is the bible okay that actually inspired the creation of what we know as the king james bible most people don't know this so basically what ended up happening was this is getting close to where the protestant reformation was and the catholic church has kind of get tired of killing people uh if you don't not familiar with that during the dark age the catholic churches were not nice to, pe- to people they were some very very difficult days and uh what was going on is in these in these latter times the um uh, the death penalty kind of started moving away. It wasn't quite so common. And some of the English translations actually found their way around. It was still heresy to to own one uh, because they refer to it as the vulgar language, uh, the English language, as opposed to the Latin, um, which is what uh, most Bibles were translated in at that time. And so what ended up happening was the Geneva Bible became so popular that the king at the time, King James, okay, started to worry that basically his connection to the to the church power at the time the catholic church was was basically founded on the church's ability to control people within that that religious religious political spectrum so what he was worried about was that he was going to begin to lose faith he was going to lose his connection to other people um and so his influence was going to wane if he didn't uh if he didn't do something about it so uh, basically he just got sick of competing it so Around 1611, um, well, before then, he ordered that a new English translation be done and his name put on it. So it was the King James Bible. Now, this is so cool. What, what this is, this was given to me. Uh, this was given to me by Susan. Susan, if you listen to this at some point in time, um, you know, still thank you so much. So this is, this is the heaviest thing that I own. This is, this is a 400th anniversary copy of the Gutenberg Bible. Um, this thing is so cool. It is so cool. Um, so it is an, a, a, an exact reproduction of the very first Bible ever put in print. So Gutenberg invented the printing press, and the first thing that he printed was the Bible. Um, now these, this is, this is so cool. You gotta, you gotta think that 
these were not printed like we think today. Um, these were printed with wood cutouts for each for each word, and they were they were put on little lines, and ev- all the artwork and everything had to be hand carved out of wood, and then it would be like you know dipped in ink and then put on the page. And it was it was very it was a very precise kind of thing. So it would take a long time to produce these things. And you think about how big this is. <laughs> okay, this thing is so massive. Um, but here's, here's the cool thing. So here's what, here's what I want to show you here. So when people say the Bible has changed, this is from 1611. When I open this thing, now for those of you who are just watching on, on the pod, or listening on the podcast and you can't see it, this Bible is like two feet tall. It weighs like 40 pounds. It's unbelievably heavy. And it's one of my favorite things. So I'm opening this up to this here is a, this is called a leaflet. This is a single page. Of an old reproduction of a Gutenberg Bible. This page, um, the page that I have, well, what was this from? This page is from 1613. This has been certified. Um, this is the true second edition of the King James Bible. So this is what that, that leaflet looks like, and this is from 1613. Now, the reproduction, when you open it up, looks the same, doesn't it? Yes, it does. There's a little bit of difference in the typeface, and that's because you got to remember all these things were hand carved, so a lot of them couldn't be reused um, for very long because eventually they would just wear out because they were made of wood. So this is this is the cool thing. I can go back to this now. I actually read yesterday as I was preparing. I read the whole page in Hosea here and the whole page in the book here, and guess what? The 400th anniversary edition that was only made a few years ago says the exact same thing uh, because the Bible's reliable and it hasn't changed. So here are some other cool things. Check this out. Uh, This is from one of the earliest Greek Latin Bibles. This is from 1550. Okay, Uh, obviously I can't read Latin, so I didn't bother translating that. Uh, here's a piece from 1497. 1497. Okay. Uh, this is, this is unbelievable. This is a German translation. Now, here's the cool thing about this. These types of, you gotta remember, this is pre-reformation. So owning these, the people who had these, would have been put to death for having them. That's how important these things are. That's how, um, that's how amazing having some of these things in a collection really is. Um, so this is a, this is a section from the book of Psalms, uh, and this is from 1617. These have, these have all been verified. These are all, these are all certified. Uh, now here's the cool thing about this. So this is the book of Psalms. Now I have gone through this, and guess what it says? The exact same thing that my Bible says today. So check that out. Those are music notes at the bottom. So this particular Bible, what they would do is they would they would uh, um, they would write out the psalm, and then they would give you musical notation to help you know how to sing that particular uh, song. Remember, the psalms were songs, so they would they would note like a hymnal how to actually walk through. This is so cool. Um, so I've got uh, German Bibles uh, leaflets that go all the way back to 1584. This is actually a. Uh, uh, a leaflet from Martin Luther's personal translation from his own work. Okay, these guys would spend their whole life translating the Bible, um, and when you when you translate it, guess what it says? Same thing our modern Bibles say. Um, so this is a 1577 version of the Geneva Bible, the one that I showed you showed you earlier. Okay, so this is this is uh, guess what? It still says the same thing. Um, this is from the 1600s. Same thing uh, hasn't changed. Um, so I've got. All of this stuff, uh, this one is actually um, uh, from the 1707 Greek Septuagint. Uh, so this is actually a leaflet from one of uh, one of their Bibles. Um, and I've actually got interlinears, and I've gone back and looked at some of the language, and guess what? Uh, even though I might not be able to read the Greek, I can check the spelling. Um, so when you go word for word, it hasn't changed. Uh, because the integrity of Scripture is actually that closely guarded. It's not something that people just let go. So, I mean, I've got gobs and gobs of these and that's just me it's it's not like i'm some sort of you know monstrous collector um so here's a section oh it was actually upside down here's a section of a hebrew text from the old testament um now i have hebrew bibles uh and i i i 
I read Hebrew in a very painful way. I'm not very good at it, uh, but I know enough to be able to to you know muddle my way through um, very very slowly um, using using Hebrew English dictionaries to make sure that I'm I'm getting things correctly. Uh, and I have gone back and looked at some of these, and they're the same. They haven't changed. So what ends up happening is actually really simple. The Bible itself has never changed. The only thing that has changed is how people use language today. So when people say, well, the Bible has been translated so many different times that the message is not the same, you just stop them right in their tracks. No, I'm sorry, you're wrong. That's not true. What has changed is the language and the way we use it today. The Bible itself, the source material, the text that we actually get our translations from has never changed. Because all translations, all good translations, there are a couple of them out there that are just horrible, and we'll get to those maybe maybe later another time. Um, but there are some that are just, they just need to be flushed down the toilet because that's about all they're worth. The text, the source material that those translations come from have never changed, and they're completely reliable. And we go back and we check the translations we have today with the original text, and we can we know we're staying true to the message. So that assertion, I'm sorry, young lady, if you actually get a chance to see this, you're dead wrong in in so many different ways. Um, so there's number one. So there's, there's piece number one right there. So secondly, um, there's no such thing as a perfect translation. So when you're looking at the Bible, there is absolutely no such thing as a perfect translation. Um, when people think of translations today, we think of of, of looking like word for word, uh, you know, and like Google Translate or something like that. Um, and we're trying to find the word in that language that means the same as the word in our language. But unfortunately, that is not how translation is done. Um, even the best word-for-word -word translations don't do that, and they don't do that for a very specific reason. We use language today very differently than how they use language even just a hundred years ago. You know, um, read some, read some, you know, original uh, ancient text, the original uh, uh, King James Bible. It is painfully difficult to read, but that's how language kind of was at that time. So essentially. Um, when you think about translating a text as as uh, as old as the Bible, some of the texts are you know close to two thousand years old. It's not simply word for word. It's you're you're also translating culture, and you're you're translating history. And so what you have are what are what are called uh, what are called what's called historical distance. So you got you got to remember there was a way of thinking about things back then, and how they pursued arguments. And then there's how we look at it today. And they're not the same thing. Um, so if we just did an absolute word for word translation, it would look really weird. So here's here's like a hyper literal translation. So this is uh, John 4.15. It says, uh, and, and our Bibles, uh, the New American Standard 95 says, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way uh, here to draw. If you did like a literal word for word insertion in here for a translation, it says, says to him, the woman, Sir, give to me this, the water, that not I thirst, nor I come here to draw. Okay, that is a literal word. Could you imagine trying to read the Bible that way? It would be horribly painful. And the reason we don't is because language is not used that way before. So translation is more than just word to word. Translation is more along the lines of thought to thought or process to process. Um we adjust language to allow it to make sense to us today in the way we use language, doing our best not to change the meaning of the text within the text itself. <coughs> Excuse me. So culture and history get in the way of this a lot. It happens constantly. So here are a couple of examples. So let me, uh, uh, let me uh, show you what I mean here. Um, when you think about how things are translated and how cultural and cultural application can be uh, very confusing. So here is the New King James Version in 1 Corinthians 7.34. It says, there is a difference between a wife and a virgin. Huh? The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit, but she who marries cares about the things of the world uh, and how she may please her husband. And let's look at the same thing in different translations. So that was the New King James. And what I want you to focus on is that first line. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. Okay, it's kind of weird, but here we go. In a New Living, it says, in the same way, a woman who is no longer married or has never been married. Let's keep going. Uh, the complete Jewish Bible says, likewise, the woman who is no longer married or the girl who has never been married. Okay, one more. 
um, the uh, 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 ESV, the unmarried or betrothed woman, or betrothed woman, betrothed, really, uh, is anxious about the things of the Lord. So now, now think about the the phrasing in this. Why would? There we go. Sorry, my uh, my screen froze up there. Now, why would the language be so weird? Why would it? Why would it do this? It, it, it's it's just awkward. Um, but here's the thing: they all mean the same thing. They all mean the same thing because what's happening is the translators are trying to pervert, trying to preserve the cultural application. So, in this time, a virgin would be someone who was never married because it, it was assumed if you were either betrothed to be married, which means you haven't gotten married yet, or you have never been married, then you're a virgin. That was, that was just a common view of how, you know, how morality worked back then. It was just assumed this is what was going on. So an unmarried woman or someone who was previously married and not married, you know, not married now, their husband died or something like that, or they were divorced or whatever, is different than than the virgin. So that's that's how this looks at. But when you look at the text, it can be really weird. You know, why is why is it saying that? Because culturally and societally, this is how they looked at it back then, you know. So no matter what term you use to the original hearers, it meant the same thing. Uh, the problem is that you don't know who's going to be reading that translation today. So inevitably, there's something that's going to be lost in translation. So the, the, the basic idea is translators are constantly juggling what has to stay there to be culturally and societally relevant to the first century church and what language can be updated to, uh, you know, without losing the process. So think, uh, without losing the meaning. So there's something always lost in translation. There's, there's something that's constantly missing. So in order to fully understand the text of the Bible, you kind of have to do some work on your own. This is the responsibility of us as Christians to do our part. We Sometimes we don't like to do our part. We like to think other people are going to do it for us, or we go to church and we hope the pastor will do it for us. That is just not the case. It is your responsibility to understand the Bible and its application. So I like to use this silly little picture to help illustrate this, but the basic idea is this. You need to understand what's not there in order to understand what's there. So uh, when you think about something now, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, you're, you're, you'll appreciate this. So here's it's just a silly picture. Um, if you've been to the church, you've you've probably seen this before. Um, now, for those of you who are watching online or listening to the podcast and you can't see this, I just put a picture up that says the Second Breakfast Club, um, and it's basically five hobbits laying down in the same way as the actors who played in the original movie, The Breakfast Club. Now, the thing is, if you know what's not in the picture then it's funny. Uh, because if you know about hobbits and they have breakfast and second breakfast and you know about the movie, um, you know that this is actually pretty funny. The problem is if you don't know the movie and if you if you don't know the Breakfast Club and you don't know Lord of the Rings, this isn't funny. It's weird. You know, it's just a little, it looks like, you know, a, a high school track team gone you know, that just you know, suddenly decided to form a band. It's just it's just not funny. But if you understand it, you get it. The same thing is true with the Bible, and this is why there are no perfect Bible translations, because there is something that is missing or implied that you need to already know in order to fully understand the text. This is why it is very, very important to make sure that when you're, whatever church you're going to, the person that you're listening to, the minister that you're listening to, that they are trained, that they are uh, they are fully capable of understanding the complexities of the text. They are fully capable of doing not just study, but good study using good resources. Um, and they, they have proven themselves, uh, you know, able to handle the Bible. That's actually in the Bible, you know, people who have shown themselves worthy of handling the text correctly. It's really, really important because if you don't, what's going to end up happening is they're going to take their own views on what they read. And remember, we're reading in English something that was not written in English. And we're reading it in the 20 first century to something that hasn't that isn't isn't really a lot of it isn't even applicable to the 21st century we they have they're dealing with things uh during during especially the time of paul we can understand the concept but we we don't understand really the relationship that's there it's not you know it's 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 very very different so we have to do the work on our side um and if we don't we can't complain that we're that we're ignorant but you see this is goes back to that 
ignorance of familiarity. We're around the Bible a lot and we read it a lot, so we think we understand it. But if you don't understand the people it was really written to, then in truth, you have a fundamental understanding of Scripture, but you're missing a huge, huge portion. Um, so that's number two. So number three, there is more than one way to translate. There's more than one way to approach the biblical text. Um, so there are three basic types of of translation. There, there's more, and you can there, people argue with different different uh, different views and different applications. But basically, they all kind of come down to these three uh, uh, simple. Uh, simple ways of approaching translation. So, as a translator, they're going to uh, they're going to bring a um they're going to bring a method to their translation, uh, and their method is either going to be literal, and so there's some examples of what literal Bibles are, things like the King James Version. New American Standard, ESV, things like that. Then you're going to have what's called a dynamic equivalent, and I'll explain what these all mean here in a second. Um, and then you're going to have a paraphrase. Now, each of these are valid in their own respect, and they all have application in their own way. And what we need to do is make sure that we understand what we're reading um, because that's going to help us understand how to approach what we're reading. Okay, so let me give you uh, let me give you a couple of examples here. So a literal text is word for word to the best of their ability making very little room for historical distance. So they're not going to update the language on social customs. They're not going to update the language on marital customs or even morality. It's just going to be what was given to them in in the most accurate way possible. Um, this works out well in a lot of ways, and it can be very confusing in a lot of ways. Um, but as long as you understand what you're reading you can actually go back and and do the work. So a literal translation is the best kind of translation for serious study, people who actually want to know. Um, if you really want to understand Scripture and you really want to study Scripture, you you have to have a literal translation. They're more laborious, um, they're more detailed, and they can be more frustrating. Um, but that's that's the idea. Uh, it, it's, it's there so that you know what to go look for. Okay. You need to, to <laughs> Amanda, I just, I just read your comment uh, that you didn't, uh, you didn't get the picture. That's okay. Um, uh, uh, your husband will, uh, I know Dan will to- totally understands it cause he laughed the first time he saw it. Um, so it's, it's, it's pretty awesome. Now, uh, by the way, I know there's some of you that are up, uh, that are, uh, uh, watching right now. If you have any questions as I'm running down through here, feel free to pop them up. I don't, I don't mind taking a little sidetrack and answering some questions as long as it's on the topic of, uh, biblical reliability and translation. So we can kind of keep these things, um, uh, moving along this way. Uh, so that's, that's the literal translation. It's, it's the most for serious study because it forces you to dig in. Um, and it also forces you to spend money on resources because, you know, you're dealing with something that's, uh, that's quite old. So, um, uh, you need resources to help you understand what it is you're reading. Uh, so the next one is a dynamic equivalent. So the dynamic equivalent is, uh, also known as formal or functional equivalent. So basically, uh, you're reading up here, it says equal to empower or thought for thought. And so basically what they do is they translate the language in a manner that allows the original intended meaning to be understood by modern readers. So they update the language without updating the purpose. Okay. So the, 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 the application of the truth in the scripture is preserved, but the language is made more common for today. This is where people have the problem. Um, the, the dynamic equivalent Bibles tend to be the most popular Bibles because they're, they're still pretty good for study. The average person and the type of biblical study that you're going to do, this is pretty good. I mean, these are, these are very reliable Bibles. Um, the thing you have to remember is that they're going to be of the opinion of the translator or the translator group. Most of these are done by committee. Um, so they're going to be, they're going to move in a direction, you know. So if you have a, um, uh, you know, if you have one theological bent and the group you're translating with has that same theological bent, a dynamic equivalent is going to kind of move in that direction, um, you know, and that, and that's okay as long as you understand that. You know, um, just because someone doesn't have the same theological views as you doesn't mean that they're, you know, condemned and going to hell. It just means that you need to understand what those theological views are so that you can accurately read what you're, uh, what you actually understand what you're reading. Um, so making that room for historical distance is incredibly helpful. Um, it allows the average reader to, to grab the Bible and fully understand the, the, the core concepts of what it's teaching. And that's the whole point. But dynamic equivalent Bibles change quite often. And every now and then, 
unfortunately, they will move in a theological direction that you actually can't uh, you, you can't stay attached to anymore. I'll give you a quick example. Um, my favorite Bible was the 1984-85 um, NIV. It is a fundamentally fantastic Bible, absolutely fantastic Bible. Um, one of the best translations that I, I think that that has has been put out. People will argue that, but that's fine. It's no big deal. But the the problem is. After kind of 95 moving forward, they started moving in a direction of more, um, uh, I'll say gender neutral, uh, or, or more, um, more gender friendly. <laughs> uh, and then basically what happened is in, I think it was 2011, um, a lot of things changed. Um, some people loved it because it, it made things in their mind very reachable, but unfortunately, when you actually get into the text, you start comparing it back to the original text, the source material. It really violated a lot of core concepts, it, and, it, and in my mind, anyway, it showed me that the NIV, which is one of the most popular Bibles in existence right now, um, the newer translations are just not reliable. Um, you're getting too much of the translator's theology and not enough of the historical truth that we can apply today. And that's, that's dangerous. Uh, you know, that's, that's where, that's where I think things become just sad, just, just really, really sad. Um, so you got to understand what it is you're reading, uh, and, and make sure that you're fully aware of what's, uh, of what's happening there. So the third version is a paraphrase. So the a paraphrase is a restatement of the basic or summarized meaning of a section of text. Um, typically, the context of a per, it's typically in the context of a very particular theological viewpoint. So, um, depending on who's writing it, every now and then you'll get a paraphrase. It's only written by one person. Um, now, whether or not, um, yeah, whether or not they uh, use good source material. Some paraphrases, they don't actually use the original text. They actually use a translated text. That might be like a paraphrase of the NIV or a paraphrase of the HCSB, something along those lines. Some don't. Some do. Um, so you really want to pay attention to what it is you're, you're looking at. Now, a paraphrase is for casual reading only. It is not for serious study. Um, and some of the paraphrases like the Living Bible, like the original Living Bible was one of the first Bibles that I actually bought. It was a rainbow edition Living Bible. Um, and then I was told that if I read that, I might not be saved and could become a heretic, so I should probably not read it. So I actually got rid of it. Uh, I wish I had it now because I should have never listened to that person because as long as I understood what I was reading, there's no problem with it. But, you know, the the paraphrase Bible, like my favorite one, honestly, is the message. Um, I know a lot of people hate the message. I like it just because it's it's so reachable. Um, and he's not trying to be deep, you know, theologically deep in the translation. He's just trying to get the main point across. And that's the intended purpose of a paraphrased translation. It's never meant for 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 real study. It's just meant so that you can keep God's word in your mind in a very simple way. So each of these three translation theories has its place. You know, for the serious student, someone who really wants to dig in, you go for the literal. Someone who wants something that's going to be easy to read, but it's still going to have all the concepts that need to be there and going to be very reachable and understandable um, so that you can still still dig in if you want to. That's a dynamic equivalent. Uh, and if you just want something to read, simply grab a paraphrase. Not that big of a deal. Just understand what you're reading and don't make the mistake of thinking that when you're reading a paraphrase that you can take it word for word. Because it's not there. Some people say, you know, the Bible says it's the. Well, is it? Uh, based on the translation that you're reading in the Bible that you're reading, is that actually what it says? Or is that the way that the English translator has applied it? Do you even understand the type of translation that you're reading? Most people don't, uh, which is why it can be very easy to get led astray. Um, so each method has its place, but the reader needs to be aware of that method. So that's number three. A lot of ways to translate. Number four, the chapter and verse numbers are not inspired. Just, just remember that. They're not inspired, but they can be very helpful. Um, so in a lot of ways, um, chapter and verse numbers, um, the numbering system should just be tossed out uh, in, in your Bible. They, they are not of God. They are not there for really any reason other than someone decided to put them there. And if you actually follow the chapter and verse numbers, most of them don't make sense. They, they break the end of a chapter where the thought hasn't 
it, the thought hasn't disconnected. You know, um, uh, they're 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 still continuing the same conversation, but you've changed chapters. Could you imagine if a if a regular book did that? You know, if you're reading a novel and all of a sudden the chapter ended in the middle of a conversation and just just kept on going, it doesn't happen that way. Books aren't written that way. So uh, the chapter and number. Uh, chapter and verse numbering system is simply there so that we can find our way around for reference points. It's, it's, it was never intended to be what it is today, but people look at it like this is some sort of Holy Spirit inspired thing and they make the mistake of thinking that the chapters like encompass whole thoughts. Like, you know, this is, this is one whole theological view. Sometimes it is, but most of the time it's not. And then, you know, it moves and like somehow things have changed. And, and that's not the way it works. You have to read the whole thing as it was intended. Now, something that I would actually in- encourage you to get is what's called a reader's edition Bible. Um, I actually just ordered one the other day. It was a New King James, uh, and they're cheap. I got a, a New King James um, reader's edition uh, on CBD. I think it was like $9. You know, it, it, they're, they're amazing. No chapter numbers, no verse numbers. It's just written as... As it, it's written in the same way that it would have had been received by its original intended audience. It changes the way that you see scripture. Excuse me. It'll change the way you understand scripture. So, um, I, I really encourage you to do that. So, but now, even though the chapter, chapter and, and verse numbers can be arbitrary, they still can be very helpful to the serious student for a number of different reasons. So I want to show you something. Um, let's see. Let's go to John chapter 5. Uh, oh, no, wait. Yes, John chapter 5, verse 2. Um, and I want, to sh- I want to show you something in here uh, just to illustrate the point. So in the top, you have the New Living Translations. This is John chapter 5, verses 2 through 6. It says, Inside the city near the Sheep Gate was a pool of Bethesda with um, with five covered porches. Verse 3, crowds of sick people, blind, lame, and paralyzed, lay on the porches. Next verse is verse 5. One of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. Now, verse 4 is missing. So people say, hi, see, you can't trust the Bible because they take verses out when they don't like them. And this is just, this is horrible. See, this is why you can't trust the message of the Bible. Okay, stop for a second. Let's take a look at another translation that has verse 4 in it and see if anything has changed. And then I'll explain to you why that verse is missing. It says, uh, so in uh, the New King James, it says, uh, in these lay great multitudes of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the move, uh, the moving of the water. Verse 4, for an angel went down at a certain time in the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had been in, uh, been an uh, an infirmity thirty eight years. Now hold on for a second. The New Living is using a different source material than the New King James was. Okay, see this this goes back to the thing we have to understand where these uh, how these Bibles were approached. Now there are a number of different ways of looking at the source material. And there's, um, some people would do a type of translation called the majority text. And if there's, uh, there's about 15,000 different copies or, or segments of the New Testament. And not all of them say the same thing because they're written in different time periods. Now they don't say the same thing for reasons that I'll explain here in a second. But some people look at majority text. Like if, if, you know, out of 15,000, if 14,000 say, say this, then they, they put that in there. Um, and the other ones look at, age text. So the ones that they've dated to be older, they say are the more reliable. The older, and you'll see that in your Bible sometimes, the older, more reliable texts have this or don't have that. So they, uh, usually those things are footnoted in good Bibles anyway. Um, so now the reason why things like this are added later is actually important to understand. So if you look, even when you add verse 4, nothing has changed. The addition gave you a detail that was missing in the other piece of material. So I want you to, I want you to think about something. If you were in the first century and you were at the Pool of Bethesda, you were in Jerusalem, you, these things were there, you understood the, uh, the legend around the pool. You understood that it was believed by everybody that an angel would come down from time to time, stir the pool, and whoever got in first would, would be healed. That was the common belief. But now think about this. For the biblical writers, 
the further away you get from that time period, especially after the pool was no longer used, the less people would understand that detail. So what would happen is these things would be added later. It's called an anachronism. Um, and so they would be added later because they were a detail that people removed from the historical time period would not have understood. So that was, uh, so it's believed anyway that, that different, different, uh, editors would add that detail in because you think about it, Jews would have understood this completely. Gentiles converting to Christianity may not have understood this at all, especially if they had never been there. So this was a detail that needed to be added to bring clarity to the to, to the uh, uh, to the narrative, so that you understood why people were laying around the pool. Why are a bunch of sick people hanging around a pool? That's weird. Oh, well, in verse four, now you understand. But you know, you see, the numbering system was give was basically put in place through essentially the King James Bible. So all of the numbering systems for all Bible translations are based on that. So if the source material they're using doesn't have that, they eliminate the verse and you got to skip a number. And it makes you feel weird, but at the same time, for the student, this is great. This is really fantastic because now you know I need to go find out what this. Like if you're if you're reading an NLT and you you realize an NLT is a dynamic equivalent, by the way, um, not not a word, not a uh, not a literal. New King James is literal. Um, so if you are looking at it, it's like, ah, there's something missing here. I need to go find out what's missing so that I understand where that verse number went. But you under, but the main thing is the text didn't change. The meaning of the text didn't change. The intent of the a text didn't change. What was added was an important detail for people who, who wouldn't have known that otherwise. It's kind of like the ultimate you had to be there kind of a thing. Um, so another version of this is found in Acts 8.35-38. through 38. Now listen to this. <coughs> Excuse me. <laughs> Again with the NLT um, says so. Beginning in the same with the same scripture, Philip uh, Philip told him the good news about Jesus. Talking about the the Ethiopian eunuch it says as they rode along, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, "Look, there's some water. Why can't I be baptized?" He ordered the carriage stop, and they went down to the water, and Philip baptized them. Cool. Um, where's thirty seven? Where, where's verse thirty seven? What does verse thirty seven say? Let's drop down to the New King James. Take a look at it. it. Says then Philip opened his mouth and began uh, and beginning at this scripture preached Jesus to him. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, "See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized?" Verse thirty-seven. Then Philip said, "If you believe with all your heart, you may." And uh, and he answered him and said, "I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God." So he communicated the chariot. So so there is this addition. Within the narrative, some will say, "See, you, you can't re- you can't rely on the uh, on the Bible to be accurate all the time because look, this changed." Well, no, we're back to the exact same thing. Now, if you think of a first century Jew or first century Christian, they would never baptize you, never baptize you if you did not confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It would have never happened. And anybody reading the text, if they were reading the NLT version or that that particular source material, they would understand, of course he would have confessed faith in Christ. Philip would have never Philip would have never baptized him had he not, because it, it just simply doesn't happen today. There was no baptizing babies back in the first century. Didn't happen. Uh, you had to be able to voice your conversion. And so, again, the further away you get from that historical significance, the less people would be fully aware of that. So, again, we have what, we have an anachronism. We have an addition to the text by an editor to add in a detail that needed to be there, but it still didn't change the text. You know, now there are some there are some word translations that kind of make some text really weird, and, and maybe we'll get to those in, an, in another another conversation. Um, but it doesn't change the core meaning of the text. So again, we go back to the original material and we can, we can check from our, from our, you know, 2000 year old source material that the Bible is completely faithful. The Bible is completely consistent and there is nothing about these additions or deletions that changes the core meaning of the text as long as we understand what we're reading if we understand where what source material that they're using what you know what are they are they using the greek septuagint or are they using you know uh, uh, solely the, uh, the the dead sea scrolls i mean wh- where are they getting their information from these things matter 
so that we understand how the translator has approached the text so that we can understand how to apply what they have given us. These are things that people who are very familiar with the Bible tend to be completely ignorant of because their familiarity with with the English Bible has kind of made them comfortable and they don't think they need to. And this isn't everybody. You understand what I'm saying. I'm not harping on anyone. This is just a reality of the world that we live in. They don't necessarily believe they need to study these things in this, in this kind of detail because, you know, someone else will do it for them. Well, what happens when someone challenges you? Just like the whole reason that we're doing this today, the, 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 um, the claim is that over the centuries, the Bible has been rewritten so many times that the message it brings can no longer be trusted. Now, just understanding basic idea, basic ideas of the, of a uh, translation theology, you know that that's completely inaccurate. It's not even a remotely accurate claim. But if you don't understand how these things come into be, it's very, very difficult to speak into that question. And sometimes we answer these questions not to convince the person, excuse me, making the claim, but to, to make sure that those people who are listening, who might be an outside part of the conversation, understand that there's an answer. You know, scripture commands us to have answers. Always be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have. First uh, Peter three fifteen, by the way. Um, so that's number four. Last one is really simple. You should be using multiple translations. You should uh, you you probably have your favorite translation, but you should be reading multiple translations. You should not be stuck on one translation. Now I know there's going to be someone who's going to hear this and going to think, no, the King James Bible is the only one that anyone should read. Well, I have a forty pound version right here. You're welcome, you know, to carry it around with you. Uh, that's not going to happen for me. There are multiple translations for good reasons, and each of those translations have their place. And how translators approach the words and approach the phrases and approach the topics and the, and the theology is important that we be um, uh, aware of this happening. And we shouldn't be afraid of multiple translations. So one of the things that I do as a pastor here at River of Life is that I challenge people each year to change their Bible. So every year I bring up a different Bible to uh, uh, to read. So um, I started this about, uh, uh, I think the Bible I was using about three years ago was the HCSB, the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Um, and so the next year I started taking Hebrew classes and I got, I got interested. And so I challenged people to grab the complete Jewish Bible and use it for an entire year. And that's the only Bible I read. That was the one that I preached from. And it was very, very interesting how the language was applied in that, uh, you know, in, in that manner. And, and people, uh, I, I got to tell you, people really loved this thing. The people who actually got it really, really enjoyed it. Now, the year before, we ended up getting getting this one. Um, we, we got a bunch of them for the church. It was the tree of life version. Um, this is, this is not something that I would study from. Um, but it's a really interesting Bible to read. It makes it very simple. It maintains the Hebrew words where they're appropriate throughout the, throughout the New Testament, which is really awesome. So I, I encourage you to get one. Um, now the, the, the next year we use the new King James Bible. So I went, you know, basically to moving back between dynamic equivalent and, 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 uh, uh, and literals. So last year we did the New King James Version, and this year, before you start yelling heretic or anything like that, um, this year we're using the New Living Translation, the NLT. Um, now that surprised a few people that I would actually use that, uh, actually use that, and recommend that because it's a. Um, some people try to argue that it's a paraphrase. It's not. It's a dynamic equivalent, um, and it's actually. It's actually really good. Um, it's very simple to read. All the core concepts are there. It's not missing anything. Um, uh, they're not moving towards gender neutrality, which is one of the things I try to avoid as much as I possibly can. Um, and it's a it's it's a it's a good way to open your mind to maybe a slightly different way of applying translation theory to a text. So um, you know, and at the same time, you should you know you want to increase your library. Now, the other thing that I would really recommend you doing is getting a hold of one of these. Now. This is a parallel Bible. Uh, now, this has the uh, 95 version of the NIV, which is the only reason why that I still have it. Um, this has the NASB, the, the King James, and the NLT all side by side. So every page you open to has all four translations side by side so that you can see 
how different translators have approached different sections of the text. Now, I recommend this for anyone who's serious about studying the Bible, because if you don't, you're going to get locked into a single theological viewpoint. Um, and some, some ways that's great, in other ways that's horrible, and I would really recommend you broadening your understanding of Scripture by reading different translations. Um, these become very, and very important and they will open your eyes to things that maybe you missed, you know, uh, uh, just, just from your, from your normal Bible reading. It doesn't mean you get rid of your favorite Bible. Just challenge yourself to step outside of your comfort zone. Don't let go of any theological views. It's not what we're saying. Uh, just challenge yourself to read something a little bit different. There's, there's nothing wrong with it. It's actually a good thing. Um, so yeah, so our, our five little topics here. Um, uh, what, what do we get? The Bible has never changed. The source material has never changed. Uh, there's no such thing as a perfect translation. There is more than one way to translate. I'll get to that person later. Uh, the chapter and verse numbers are not inspired, but they can be very helpful. And at the same time, you should be reading more than one translation. So do yourself a favor. Start looking into why these things exist. Don't just be... Don't fall into the trap of the ignorance of familiarity. And don't assume that you know something. Make sure you know it. That way you can answer some of these common questions that are uh, that are, are in the church today that we really do need to deal with. Um, so, hope that helped. Uh, hope it wasn't too long. Uh, we'll see. Uh, not bad, a little over an hour. Um, I was sh- shooting to be a little bit, uh, a little bit quicker, but uh, I'm a pastor and long-winded, and that's just sort of the way it goes. So, if you like this video, share it. Um, we're also available on YouTube and Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, uh, wherever you get your podcast, iHeartRadio, all those different ones are going to be there. I'll post this up later. I uh, hope you had a good afternoon. Thank you for being here, and Lord bless you. Have a fantastic day.